talk to you today about when the Lord entered his house. When the Lord entered his house. We're talking about the Holy Week. We're talking about um, Palm Sunday. This is the day that the Lord rode into Jerusalem and he no longer was hiding who he was. You see, for 30 years, Jesus was growing in wisdom and stature in man. We know by, at least by the age of 12, that Jesus knew what his role was. That he was the lamb that was going to be slain for humanity. And he knew that during his, his time on, on this earth and, and during his ministry, that if, if he allowed his true identity to be known, they would have crucified him ahead of time. But now, here's Christ coming into Jerusalem. He knows in just a few days he is going to be crucified. He knows his moment in time is right here. And Jesus no longer hides who he is. In fact, he allows them to worship him as he's going into Jerusalem. As he's riding on the donkey, they're laying palm branches down and they're laying their coats down and they're singing Hosanna to the son of David and, and they're worshiping him. Now, I like, we're going to be reading out of the book of Matthew and, and Matthew is really unique. Have you ever noticed that, that, some, that if you watch a movie with somebody or if you see an uh, maybe an accident, you know, and you watch it and you both see it together, that you can pick up different things from that movie that somebody else missed. Have you ever noticed that? I've watched movies with people before, and as they describe what they just saw, I thought, what movie did you watch? Because this is what I saw. Or if you see a wreck and the police officer says, hey, uh, what happened? Somebody might say... Well, that blue car hit that red car. Somebody else may say that Ford hit that Chevy. Or somebody else may say that carload of teenagers ran the light and hit this lady. All the same accident, incident, but from different perspectives. This is what the scripture says in, in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says every scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. Every bit of it from Genesis all the way through Revelation is inspired by God. But here's the great thing about it. The writers of the scripture had their own style and wrote about what they caught or what rather what caught their attention. That's why you can read a story that says about one blind man. Somebody else reads a story about two blind men because they focused on what they saw. Differences, but truth nonetheless. Different perspectives of the very same story. And today we're going to be reading out of Matthew. Here's Matthew's perspective of, of the triumphal entry and what Jesus did and what Jesus wanted to, to get across. The Bible says in Matthew 21 that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Now, that word stirred is really an interesting word. It's not just like, oh, inquisitive. 
You have to understand that the environment during that time, this word stirred is the same one that you would use if there was an earthquake. Everything was on fever pitch in Jerusalem. It was the time of Passover. People were flocking in from all of the countries. There was just a buzz going around that city. It was on fire. It was just excitement everywhere. And when Jesus comes into the city, it even adds more fuel. And, Je and they looked around and they said, man, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They got it partially right. His name was Jesus. But he was far more than a prophet. And Jesus was about to show them and explain to them and help them understand that I am not just the prof a prophet, but I am the King of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I am the, la the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. I am getting ready to conquer death for you. I am getting ready to bring healing for you. I'm getting ready to bring deliverance for you. I am far more than a prophet. Crowds almost had it. They almost had, but here's Jesus, uh, here's Matthew, and Matthew skips. Matthew skips from the triumphal entry to the next day. Now, let's go on and read. This is what, now this is the next day. The Bible says Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. But why would Matthew skip to the next day? Because he's driving home what was important to him, what stood out to him. It was important for his readers to understand that, that Jesus had a triumphal entry. But the very next thing that Matthew wants you to see, wants you to understand how he described the whole week, how he described the whole event. And it's really amazing that Matthew is writing this knowing that Christ has already died, knowing that he's rose again, and it's years later. This is after Pentecost. This is after he's been walking with the Lord for, for years after the resurrection of Christ, and he is writing this. He's putting it on paper, and, and, and he says, the very next thing that was really important to me was that Jesus entered the temple courts, and he drove out all who were buying and selling. And you have to ask yourself, why? Notice he doesn't, well, let's re read this whole thing. Buying and selling, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and drove out uh, the benches of those selling doves. And he says, it is written to them. If you go to the next slide, please. It is written to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Notice he doesn't say that, that den of robbers. He's not saying those that were selling were robbing people. Sometimes we, we, we can kind of look at that and say, well, they were just cheating them. That they were, they, it wasn't that at all because Jesus drove out not just the sellers, but he drove out those that were buying. Jesus drove out everybody. And you have to ask yourself, why? 
Why did Jesus intentionally drive out those that were buying and those that were selling in the temple? And it wasn't just that they were in the temple. They were in the court of the Gentiles, the court where everybody could come and pray, where everybody could connect with God. What was happening is when they were buying and selling, they were, they were making the sacrifice easy for those coming in. Let me, let me explain a little. When they, everybody that came had to provide a sacrifice. Somebody had the bright idea. I know what we'll do. We'll just have sacrifices right here. And what we'll do, we'll just come in and, and they, can, they can buy their sacrifice right here. We'll make it easy for them. Anybody that's coming in, I don't care how far they had to travel. They could buy their sacrifice right here. We'll even make a discount. They were buying and selling sacrifice to make it easy on God's people. Can I ask you a question? When has sacrifice ever supposed to be easy? Isn't the, the term sacrifice, doesn't it insinuate that, that it's going to cost you something? That the sacrifice that they were sacrificing, that, that they were offering a sacrifice that really didn't cost the person that was bringing the sacrifice anything but a few dollars? And they were even, if they had foreign currency, they were able to exchange it for them right there. You know what that reminds me of? Okay, I'm, I'm going to start meddling right now. Are you ready? Reminds me of the church in America right now. That we have made it so palatable. And we've made it so easy. That all you do is come in and accept Christ. And we have failed to realize that the very important issue at hand is that those that come to Christ must come bringing a sacrifice. That we cannot just say, oh, we're a seeker-friendly church. We are a church that understands that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you don't know him, everything is meaningless. And Jesus was trying to convey and Matthew was trying to help the readers understand that when Jesus drove them out, it wasn't to be mean, it wasn't to be austere, but he was trying to reestablish his house, that his house was a house of prayer, that, that this is the place that you come and you meet with God, that you meet with the creator of the heavens and the earth, that if your life is turned upside down, you can go to the creator of the heavens and the earth and he can turn your life right side up. And if you need blessing, he can bless you. And if you need healing, he can heal you. And if you need deliverance, he will deliver you. But it's never designed to be easy. When I came to Christ, I came to him and I had to give everything in me because Christ is, is jealous God is jealous. He doesn't want just a part of your heart. He doesn't want half of your life. He doesn't want three quarters of your life. He wants everything. 
And you ask yourself, why? Why would God be that? Why, why does he want everything? Because he wants to give you everything. And he knows, God knows, that it's through surrender to him that we find freedom. It's, it's through him that we find deliverance. And it's through that time in, in prayer when we give our life to Christ. And Christ was coming and he decided that I, I want to remove everybody and I want to drive them out. I don't want to make it easy. Christ was wanting to, number one, establish the sacrifice of prayer. Here's what Isaiah says in 56, 7 of Isaiah. He says, these things will I bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The temple was designed for people of all nations to come and meet with their creator. Anything that we do, anything we do that waters that down needs to be removed. It's the relationship that God desires. Devotion and commitment are foundational for a close, personal relationship with him. And it's God's desire for us to have that relationship. Not to replace it with, with things that we create on our own. But he wants that sacrifice of a broken and contrite spirit. And the scripture says that, that a person that has a broken and contrite spirit, he will never turn away. This is called costly grace. Grace is receiving from the Lord that which we do not deserve. But, but there is a thing called cheap grace and there's a thing called costly grace. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German theologian, once said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is the grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate in us. It's important to understand that if you want to walk in relationship with, with Christ, Paul, Matthew is helping us understand that you have to bring that sacrifice and come before the Lord in prayer. It's in prayer. It's communion with God that's essential in our life. The second thing that, that Jesus did, he says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Don't you love that? That he healed them. The second thing that Jesus wanted to, to uh, convey through Matthew was simply this, that there is healing for the nations. All that came to him were healed because God's house is a house of restoration. Psalm 73, 17, uh, Asaph was saying, man, my feet almost slipped. I almost stumbled. I almost fell. I almost lost faith because I was looking around at the prosperity of the wicked. But he said, as I entered into the house of God, I understood their end. 
There's something about the corrective influence of the house of God that, that you can look around in the world and you can see that it looks like everything's prosperous and everything's great and everything's going well. But when you get into the house of God and you begin to pray and you allow God to bless you, you can understand what he's ready to do and what he's going to do in your life. God's house is a place of healing. It's a place of healing for the mind. It's a place of healing for the body. It's a place of healing for the spirit. Because it's in the house of God that we discover eternal perspective. Let's go on. This is what Matthew continues and he says... But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Isn't that interesting? They saw children worshiping Jesus, and it made them mad. That word indignant was, is simply they were moved to a point that they were outraged that they had physical and emotional pain, that hearing children worship Jesus as the Messiah got them so frustrated that they were physically tormented. That's pretty bad, isn't it? I remember once we were at, in, in uh, Disneyland, not the world, but we were in the land. We were standing in line, I think, at Space Mountain, and my girls were real small, and there's a group of teenage boys that were right behind us, and they just kept using profanity over and over and over again. So I said, guys, I have little kids. Would you knock that off? And my wife thought, oh, my God, he's going to be pummeled right here. But there was just something in my spirit that said, these little girls don't need to hear that. And it moved me to the place that I had to respond. This is what, well, it's what these priests were moved to a place that they could not take it any longer. And this is what, this is what they said to Jesus, if you'd go on. He said, do you hear what these children are saying? And they asked him, yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. Children worshiping Christ as the Messiah offended them. You know, worshiping Christ offends many. I don't know if I should, I'm going to say it anyway. There are those in our culture that get offended by a lot. I'm going to tell you, if Dr. Seuss offends you, wait until they read the Bible. There are, there are things that, that we need to understand that we are called to be worshipers of God. And, and there are going to be times in this life and in that, that there are going to be people that disagree with you. And there are going to be people that think that you are crazy. And there are going to be people that, that feel that they are intellectual. And they're going to be able to say you're wrong and, and you can't do that. But you notice what Jesus said, leave them alone. They're the ones that are right. And I don't know about anybody else. And, and I don't know about anybody else that calls himself a Christian. And I don't know anybody else that, that professes Christ. But I will 
let you know that today and tomorrow and until the Lord comes, I am going to be a passionate worshiper of Jesus Christ. And, and it, it, Christ is calling for us to stand up and be counted. I am an unashamed worshiper. I will worship him because I know what he did. And I don't care what the intellectual and, and the intelligentsia of our world today tells me that, that Christ was just a man. I know that he is the son of God. I know that he died. I know that he rose again. I know that he has pardoned my sins. I know he lives in my heart. And I know he's coming back. And when the trumpet sounds, I'm going to live with him throughout an eternity. And I know it, and I know it, and I know it. And I don't care what anybody else says. So you can call me childish, you can call me a little child, you can look and say, uh, would you quit, would you please tell him to quit doing that? I can't stop doing it because I have caught a glimpse of who Christ really is. I've caught a glimpse of eternity and in my heart there is a melody that sings the praises of our Lord and Savior. And there is nothing else in this world, not a thing in this world that compares to knowing Christ. Christ came, walked into his house, and said, I'm establishing sacrifice, I'm establishing prayer, I'm establishing healing, and I'm establishing worship. And you say, what does that mean to me? That was 2,000 years ago. As I, I'm going to ask the praise team to come back. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul talking to the church of Corinth and he says these words. Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? See, we don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore to go to the temple. Because when Christ came, and when he died, that, that veil in that temple was, was torn from top to bottom. And it wasn't just to let us in, but it was to let him out. And now, wherever his believers are, that's where the temple is. That you and I are the temple. We are the place where the presence of God abides in this world. That means... That prayer needs to live in us. That means that healing needs to be in us. That, need, that means that worship needs to be in us. My friends, if you're in need today, Christ came to fulfill that need. If you need, if you need God to speak into your heart, God will speak today. If you need healing, physical, mental, emotional healing, God is there and he is willing and he is able. But we must enter into his presence and call on him. Would you stand with me, please? That same German theologian, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said this. He said, action springs not from thought, but from a readiness for responsibility. 
no one can make any of us worship. No one can make any of us be a house of praise. No one can make any of us go to God for, for anything. It comes through our own willingness. And it has to go beyond thought. It has to go to action. Maybe you're here today and you've been thinking, you know, I, I like this thing called Christianity. I like Christ. But there's more than just liking the thought of Christ. It's the readiness. It's the person that said, I've had enough of this world. It's good and it's bad and everything else in it. I've had enough of it because it just does not satisfy. And it's the ready person. It's the person that says, I've had enough. I am making my way to the throne of God. This is what the scripture says. If any person comes to him, he will not turn them away. That journey with Christ begins right here in your heart. When you say, I believe, and you come to him and say, Lord, I want to be a worshiper of you. And you ask him to pardon you. That's the reason why he came. Because he knew we could not help ourselves. So he came and died for us and stood in our place that we could come to him after he rose from the grave and he could give us life everlasting. But it just doesn't come just through thinking about it. It comes through action. And action comes through a ready mind that says, I want Christ in my life. And it's that person that says, Lord, here I am. Forgive me and let me walk with you. That's the person that Christ will not turn away. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, it starts by simply saying, Lord, here I am. Maybe you've known him for a while and, and, and Christianity has just become a, a thing you do. Maybe it's you come to church because you want to get your Jesus hour on Sunday morning. It's never supposed to be that way. And I'll be honest, if I have made it feel that way, I, I repent. And I ask you to forgive me. Because it's never supposed to be that way. We come together to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, and to encounter the living God. He's here today. If you've made if you've made church, if you've made Christianity, if you've made your walk with Christ, anything else other than than a relationship with God that you can worship the Creator. Right now is the time to say, Lord, here I am. The beauty of this is God knows who we are. He knows our humanity. He knows our weaknesses. And he never holds them against us. He's just looking for people that says, here I am.
in my frailty, in my imperfection, in everything else in my life here 